Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Venture Stories by Village Global podcast. I'm here today with two very special guests, Steve Schlafman and David Markovitz. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Awesome. So we're here today to talk about a bunch of things, mental health, depression, addiction, and how that relates to uh, startup opportunities and where there can be businesses built in the space that tackle some of those some of those challenges. I'd like to start with brief introductions, maybe 30 seconds each on where you guys fit in the ecosystem. Steve, do you want to start first about how you how you relate to that? Sure. So 30 second overview. Here, here it is. So I'm a partner at Primary Venture Partners in New York. I've been a VC for almost a decade here in the city. I have spent a fair amount of time looking into addiction and mental health broadly, both consumer and more B2B applications. I also think it's important to note that I, I am sober and certified in mental health first aid. So this is definitely an area of interest. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, both from the user perspective and also from the investment perspective. Awesome. Well, we'll get into that. David, how about you? Yeah. So um, I uh, spent the better part of my life in the classroom and 10 years in medical school residency fellowship. And finally, on the other side of that, um, I'm an addiction psychiatrist now uh, on faculty down at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. And in addition to an interest in addiction psychiatry, I also have an interest in integrated or collaborative care, working with primary care and other medical specialties to try to improve access, integration, and value uh, to patients. And so my role at Vanderbilt is to help uh, build more uh, integrated pathways of care for patients with addiction or presenting in medical settings. A few other interests in the mix, but I'll, I'll leave it there for to keep it at 30 seconds. Okay, awesome. Steve, you mentioned perspective as a, as a user and an investor. Let, let's start with as an investor. How have you thought about uh, the space as an investor? Where are there opportunities to build startups in the space? What are the sort of the sub, uh, the different approaches and who, is, uh, who has done really well to date? Yeah, well, I think mental health is, is a pretty broad category. And even within the B2B side and certainly on the B2C side, there's a lot of fragmentation in, in companies trying to tackle bits and pieces of it. I think one company that comes to mind is certainly Calm. And, and, they, and they focus more on the meditation space, but they more or less consider themselves as a mental health company and, and really, really like what they've done to bring meditation to the masses. As it relates to sort of more mental health, the thing that I've struggled with, particularly as it relates to just an app-based approach, is that I think that one of the, the core challenges is just around retention. And that I think what you tend to get is this like really big spike at first, and then people tend to tail off. And so a lot of the sort of single point digital solutions, I'm pretty skeptical about. For me, where I think the real transformation is taking place is is really at the point of care and not just at like delivering like single point of care. For example, I was 
an investor at RRE where I was a principal and on the board of a company called Groups that's sort of reimagining opiate addiction care and the hardest hit areas in, in the country, certainly Midwest and Northern New England, among other areas. And there, you know, they were dramatically delivering a lower price point to people that effectively couldn't afford going away for 30, 60, or 90 days to get clean from, from opiate addiction. And so I, 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 I really liked that model because they were increasing access. And I think where there's larger opportunity is really around the whole continuum of care. So like bringing people in at the top of the funnel and then like treating them and then sort of all the monitoring and stuff that happens on the back end. And so those are obviously a lot more capital intensive, but I tend to believe that um, those are where you'll have the most impact in terms of driving outcomes. Yeah. If you could incubate a company in the space, uh, is that what you do? Or, or what would you do if, if you were starting a company in the space? If I were trying to, to incubate a company in the space, I think I would really focus on, on, the, full, on the full continuum of care. So it wouldn't just be like, I'm going to help people get sober. Right. So if we're using addiction as as one example, it would be okay. It's everything from how do we manage intake, how do we route them to the appropriate recovery methodologies or modalities, whatever you want to call them, and then afterwards, you know, how do we have like continuing care? And you know, I tend to believe, and I would I would certainly defer to to David because he he's certainly an expert. I'm just sort of a, a a bystander watching on the sidelines, but I sort of feel like there are different forms of therapy and and ways of getting healthy that might be different for people. So rather than sort of taking a one size fits all, and so that's why the continuing care piece is so I'm so interested in because I I tend to have the mindset that addiction you can't just treat through therapy. It needs to be a collection of, of activities. And so if I were to build a company, it would really focus on that and then probably do it in a way that attaches value-based care, where the company is basically taking the risk for outcomes. But I think the only way that you can take risk for outcomes is by, by effectively trying to manage everything from intake through continuing care. Awesome. David, how would you approach it from a medical perspective? If you were to incubate a, a company in, in the space, where, where do you think there's a, there's white space or big opportunity? Thanks. Really cool to hear uh, Steve talk about that. I, I would debate his point that he's not an expert because I think he got to the heart of some of these issues really quickly. You know, I, I guess in answering the question about what startup I would incubate and, and keeping in mind that I'm not an entrepreneur yet – I, I would just give a little bit of background and context, which is that, you know, this country has undergone various phases of medicalization and demedicalization of addiction issues. Certainly the period around prohibition was a big period of demedicalization. And of course, what sometimes follows that is criminalization, which we we broadly think now hasn't been effective. And so there's this huge movement towards a chronic disease model of care in addiction with the suggestion uh, that it results in better outcomes for patients, uh, especially with opioid use disorder and some of the new medications that have come into you know more popular use in the past decade or several decades in the case of methadone 
Uh, although methadone has never really taken off in the way that people think buprenorphine and to some extent I am now Trexone or Vivitrol are going to. And that, that may be a, a whole other discussion about the role of medications. But I think that Steve hit the nail on the head, which is that there is an opportunity for chronic disease care and for adding value to patients at the beginning, middle, and maintenance phase of treatment. What I've seen so far, is, and, and I think groups is an example of that, and probably Steve having served, it sounds like on their board, would have a better lens into all the ins and outs of their uh, available services. But my sense has been that th- part of their efficiency was in offering a little bit of a one-size-fits-all model of care for opioid addiction. And that can be profitable uh, when you have either insured patients or a good state-sponsored health insurance that is paying reasonable rates and an efficient model of care. But it doesn't, in my experience, really take accountability for the continuum of care or for the more complex patients. And so what I'm sort of seeing in my work, especially providing some hospital-based addiction services, is that you really like with so many things, having two populations or at least two populations receiving care driven along socioeconomic lines. And so savings may accrue to third-party payers, but they're also accruing to societies and to governments in, in a lot of other ways that aren't captured in the sort of health insurance industrial complex. And so really thinking broadly about a, a model of care that's effective or, or a startup would need to think very carefully about what population you were targeting and therefore what your value proposition would be if you really were going to target the larger population, especially those affected by the opioid epidemic, then I would argue that you you would need to think about a value proposition, not only to third-party payers, but also to the state and federal governments. I'd actually like to jump in. David brings up a really great point as it relates to specific populations. And one of the trends that I'm starting to see play out is more segmentation around who the companies are serving. And so I think let's back up. You know, if you look at addiction recovery 10, 20, 30 years ago, very much serving specific kind of population tend to be middle to upper class, predominantly white for those that could afford the treatment, right? Because cost has obviously been a huge barrier. And so you know, it have a lot of fragmentation. And so someone that would go into a program was effectively effectively getting the same product and experience as, as other people. So like, for example, from my own experience, why I knew there was an opportunity, I, I did a short stint in what's known as intensive outpatient, which is, you know, a 28 day program, I would go to work all day. And then after work, I would I would go and basically sit in a room with other people that are struggling. And we talked, but in that room, there's someone with heroin addiction, someone with cocaine. Now, I didn't necessarily identify with with many of them. You know, we certainly had some things in common, but it was basically taking a one-size-fits-all approach to recovery, whereas I think where we're going to move is focusing more on populations. And so in the case of groups, the thing that we loved is that they were targeting some of the hardest-hit areas, like the very rural areas of people that couldn't afford to A, they couldn't afford it, but B, these people aren't used to leaving their immediate area to, to go and get to get help. And talking more about segmentation, there's a company that I really admire, love the entrepreneur. Her name is Holly Whitaker. She runs a company called Hip Sobriety. 
know, she's really building for sort of the millennial to sort of the millennial generation, like housewives, like coming out of college for women and those that might not necessarily consider themselves alcoholics, but have kind of a tricky relationship with alcohol. And like, that's the brand she's building and she's building, you know, a really powerful brand and it's really resonating. And so, you know, again, going back to David's point, uh, segmentation, I think is really, really important. And we're going to see more of that. Talk more about how you think about go to market and should people work with the industrial, you know, existing health system, should this be DTC? How should companies here think about go to market? This is Dave. I'll just say that anything that involves a term like go to market or B2B, Steve should take first. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll understand the term and then I'll jump in. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I have no doubt Dave will have a lot to add. So I'll, I'll quickly say by, I think particularly as it relates to addiction, I think mental health, if we're going to bro- bucket that broadly, I think is a little bit different, but I think a Trying to sell addiction services into employers is very challenging for a whole range of reasons. You know, we can start with there's, you know, there's obviously still a lot of stigma associated with it. It's just, I think it's, it's really tough, especially if you're, you're asking employees to then go sign up for these programs. And I think the sales cycles are long. And so like, I don't necessarily think that's the go to market. I just think selling into employers is really tough. And so I think the way that you have to crack it is actually by going to insurers and other kinds of organizations that I think if you can show some sort of demonstrated efficacy and some outcomes, it's certainly a big if. But if you can and and try to go down the value-based route, I think insurers will definitely have a a bigger appetite than employers to, to, to contract. Yeah, you know, I would just add in in my first academic faculty job, I think I'm starting to see the playbook for some of the folks trying to enter this space. And it certainly includes pitching a value proposition to third party payers. Uh, Of course, you know, as a physician, I have mixed feelings about that when the value proposition is all on the cost savings side, and not necessarily geared towards, you know, the improved outcomes end of the value proposition. But I think it's obviously a key part of the playbook. And and we think, you know, with our bloated healthcare system that there is room to save money and improve outcomes. It doesn't have to be one or the other, certainly. You know, the other thing I'm seeing is, is part of the playbook is partnerships with academics. And I haven't yet seen maybe great examples, although perhaps um, Pair Therapeutics, which now has an FDA-approved app for uh, alcohol use disorder. And I'm not sure if they've gotten approval yet for opioid use disorder, but they are a good example, I think, where they have used academic research to obviously bolster their case for FDA approval and therefore gained kind of a prominent role in the in the field of apps, whereas there may be many other apps that are not FDA approved that have not gone through that rigorous process. And so certainly, I think that companies that are providing services to patients with addiction and mental health issues that that are able to successfully parlay a relationship with academics and academic-minded physicians and psychiatrists are going to have an advantage in credibility on the broader market. What do you think is the B2B opportunity here? And when you say B2B, I think you could argue that B2B could be going to insurance carriers or could be 
partnering with other kinds of organizations. And so, you know, I, I personally, as I said earlier, I, I personally wouldn't go through traditional employers as a pure play addiction service. I just, I just don't think that's going to work. So I would, I would definitely try to go more towards partnering with insurance companies because I think there's just going to be more success. It certainly takes longer and, and, and more complex, but I think it's, it's, it will, it will lead to greater results. Totally. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I think the health, the health insurance organizations, I think the large healthcare provider organizations are, you know, in my experience, kind of ambivalent about some of the partnerships with call it millennials or whatever the generation after that is, because there is just this kind of uh, old guard mindset and because healthcare is kind of clunky. And so when you have somebody with a great app or a great platform who wants to come into a large healthcare organization, a multi-billion dollar healthcare organization like Vanderbilt or the Mayo Clinic uh, or Partners Healthcare, there's going to be this David and Goliath moment and a question of whether they can integrate with the EMR and Epic. So I still think there's a huge amount of opportunity there to make things happen faster, more efficiently, better for patients. But I also am, am somewhat daunted by the challenge and it's probably similar issues with pitching these platforms to state governments. So, you know, one thing I will say is I've, I've seen a lot of direct to consumer apps, particularly as it relates to uh, addiction recovery. And I just I'm, I'm re- at least those that are serving the the patients. I'm just skeptical that an app alone is going to keep someone from using. I, I just think it's incredibly challenging for a whole range of, of reasons. And so I, I just, I'm, I'm skeptical that an app all by itself will work. The one thing that I have seen a greater increase of are a range of startups that are trying to uh, help the sort of the, the care team, meaning like the families, whether it's like vet and find new options. So, you know, effectively sitting on top of the existing market and so helping, you know, demystify how do I help someone that I love get help and then route them in the right direction. So that's more of a D to C direct to consumer approach that I see real value in. But again, it's effectively sitting on top of the existing industry. And through our extensive research, when I was at RRE, like there are some some real challenges with the way things have been done for a long time because you don't get the full continuum of care. But you could imagine a recovery coach or a recovery planner, like a wedding planner, direct to consumer. But if they're able to really do it better than what's happening in large healthcare organizations and academia, academia which is new to that whole ball game. I mean, case management has been around for decades, but I would say case management that's really focused on modern addiction treatment is a relatively newer phenomenon. And so if you could market that well to um, either third-party payers, as some companies are doing, or to healthcare organizations and and prove that you've built a better uh, way of doing it, then there may be some traction there too. I completely agree. I completely agree. I I think there's, there's a bunch of opportunity there. Steve, one thing we talked earlier about you having the real empathy for the user based on your experience. What do you think people 
who build in the space who might not have that miss out or, or perhaps misunderstand about the, the core user? Well, most of the people that I've seen building in this space actually really, for the most part, really understand the user. And it's, and again, it's only the, the I've probably met two or three dozen or so companies building in and around addiction. Most of them actually really understand the, the, the customer and they understand sort of the problems associated with it, whether they've had addiction themselves or someone in their family that's been struggling or, you know, in the case of like Jeff DeFlavio, the founder and CEO of groups, you know, he was, he was on the ground in New Hampshire and was seeing the problem firsthand and obviously talking to the patients and really taking a very like customer centric view. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here is like, I actually think most of them have a pretty good understanding. Now, where I think this, the, the understanding might be a little disjointed is on the go-to-market side and sort of underestimating some of the, the challenges in terms of just penetrating the various organizations, such as insurance companies and so on, that you need a partner with in order to get scale. Yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll just jump in. I was thinking exactly the same thing, that, that that's what folks probably underestimate is how hard it is to break in. I mean, I do think that at the population level, people underestimate the ambivalence of, of folks with addiction issues. And, you know, that that may also play into the challenge of then building a marketable solution. But no, I absolutely agree. Zooming out for, for, for a second, why in the last decade, and it's a big question, why has this become so much of a more macro uh, issue? What what's happened in, from a macro perspective that is that has made this uh, made this much more acute? Well, I would I would say there's at least two trends that come to mind for me, and maybe Steve can jump in. And I also do have some questions I'd love to ask Steve when the timing is right. Basically, the the two trends I'm thinking about one, obviously, the opioid crisis has shown a light on this and has affected uh, a different segment of the population. Frankly, more socioeconomically advantaged people, more Caucasian people. That's been a, a well-known trope now in sort of understanding why there's more political attention to the opioid crisis uh, and why there's sort of an interest in a macro response. I, I think the other thing that has increased in the past decade or so has been an awareness of the drivers of cost in healthcare and the fact that behavioral health is a significant driver which may not necessarily mean that there's profit to be made in targeting that population uh, in and of itself, but that there is value to be created in helping healthcare organizations integrate care of behavioral health. So those, I think, are two trends I would point to. I wonder if there's other things uh, you or Steve had in mind. I, I, I think, for again, what just to touch on something I've already mentioned, I think, well, I, I sort of see multiple trends the first being segmentation, right, and starting to really target solutions towards personas and rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. So I think that's that's definitely one one trend that I'm seeing. The other is more or less going more towards a full-spectrum end-to-end care, focus more on value and outcomes, which hasn't been the norm in the industry for a long time. And so I would say that those are those are definitely two trends that I continue to see. The other is 
starting to realize that for a long time, primary care did not want to deal with mental health and addiction specifically. It was sort of outside their domain uh, and not wanting to really deal with it. And I'm starting to see a number of companies, whether it's Lyra or Quartet, or there's a there's a new, relatively new company called Boulder Care that's focused on opiate addiction, which is partnering with local physicians and then providing like the online platform for whether it's MAT, medical assisted, uh, medication assisted treatment, such as buprenorphine or others like methadone, and then being able to subscribe or prescribe through the the service and then do the continuing care. And it's based, it's a, it's a relatively distributed team, but the CEO is based here in New York. The other co-founder was, was one of the founding uh, on the founding team of clean slate, which I'm, you might be familiar with. Yeah, that, I think that interest in integrating behavioral care and population health there's a little bit of a chicken or an egg question for me because we've seen obviously government payers, you know, starting with the ACA passage, moving in the direction of creating accountable care organizations that, you know, are going to reap cost savings theoretically for the larger system. But of course, if you're going to do that, it means an emphasis on behavioral health. And so there's a question of is the awareness of behavioral health costs driving this or is the larger healthcare trend towards accountable care organizations driving the interest in behavioral health? And it's probably both or maybe a false dichotomy. I'm just really fascinated by this whole world of venture capital. And as I've been approached now, you know, by a half dozen or so folks in different companies in this space, whether it's to serve on a scientific advisory board or to provide some other form of consultation or to really get in on the ground floor. You know, these are things that naturally excite me as a person who's used to the pace in academics, but also it's very hard for someone uninitiated to know where to put one's effort, what to bet on, who to bet on. Uh, I think I've talked a little bit with Eric about this in the past of obviously you know, some things cut across disciplines, which is, is this, is this somebody who has a good reputation, who's easy to work with, but I'm just curious, what are the other things that you think about in this space in particular, when you're trying to decide, Steve, if this is a a person or an organization that, you know, you want to get involved with, if it has legs and really if it's a self-starter where they're going to be doing big things regardless of your involvement versus you having something you need to contribute. So a lot of questions baked in there, but please feel free to riff. My colleagues at RRE and I, when when I was a principal at at the firm, when we did our deep dive into the addiction space, again, we had a a thesis around value-based care and we had done a lot of work up until that point. And so when we met Jeff DeFlavio, he hadn't taken any capital and he had five or six clinics already up and running. And it was very clear to us that he had figured out a model that had potential. And, you know, Jeff, Jeff is, is a, is a great entrepreneur, very creative, super smart, ambitious. And he came to us and, and sort of explained the model and it mapped exactly to how we were thinking about the world. And, you know, you, you also have to remember that at the time we had probably seen at least a dozen and a half companies. So, you know, we had a sample size 
that was, I think, somewhat relevant. And we and and, and there's a lot of investors that would have been like, well, they're accepting uh, out of pay, you know, cash for service. Um, that's really tough. You know, we want to see insurance billing, and we were actually like, well. You know, they're charging, I think at the time they were charging $50 or $55 a week. And wow. we said to ourselves, or $60 actually, but he said, you know, they're charging $60 a week for, you know, access to, to MAT and group therapy and being, being able to be seen by a physician on a regular basis at their clinics. And we were like, well, what other option do these, do these patients mm-hmm. have? Presumably, I mean, by the way, that's not including the cost of medication, the $60 a week. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, we started looking at that and we're like, okay, well, you know, people are paying out of pocket, but what's the alternative? You know, if you're in a place like North Vernon, Indiana, right, where Indianapolis, where the methadone clinics is an hour plus drive, like it's really groups is the only game in town. And in addition to that, it's like if you want to take your son to school, right? Like the only option you're going to have is to try to get sober. And so we felt that, you know, spending $60 a week is better than spending 100, 300, however much you're spending on to procure the drug. And so we just felt like the model made a lot of sense with the plan that they were going to eventually go to insurance companies and, and bill through them. But the point is, is that we've known enough about the space. We'd spent enough time with with Jeff and his co-founder, Joy, just to be like, okay, we believe this team has a compelling model and we think the problem's huge and we want to be a part of it. Now, that said, I'm, I'm, I probably see a new company every other week. And, you know, when we were looking at this, this was about four years ago when we started our work, you know. There was very few companies actually innovating in the space. Now I feel like I see almost like a new company every other week. So mm-hmm. I think it's becoming more difficult because mm-hmm. there's just more, there's way more noise in the space, which is a great thing. A lot of, a lot of teams are passionate about solving this problem. I don't know if that, if that was helpful. It was. I mean, I heard you say several things, you know, some of which uh, may be more intuitive, like you want it to be somebody who is smart, creative, entrepreneurial that you can bet on, but also that you guys had a philosophy of what constituted good treatment and what constituted value going into your interviews. And so there there needed to be alignment there. It, it, although it did sound like from everything you've said that continuum of care you know, and not just outpatient one size fits all is, is, is something you're thinking a lot about. How did group appeal to you in that regard? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, you have to remember that when we invested at RRE, they hadn't taken any money. They had five clinics. So you can only develop so much of your program in just a few years. And so we, we knew that, like what we saw like in terms of their existing offering was what they had. However, the vision was to develop, you know, a full set of, of services that tied into the continuum of care more towards on the back end. Now that said, one of our core ideas as we thought about the space was that 
you know, for let's use my my case of going through IOP, intensive outpatient, the 28 day program. You know, you pay twenty five hundred dollars up front or three thousand, whatever it was. I didn't want to go through my employer for the reasons I discussed around. Didn't want anyone to know about it. Was I put it on my credit card? I'm done with the. I, I went on my own accord. At the end of the 28 days, I basically never heard from that facility ever again. And now I'm on my own. And so what we we came in looking at this market really with a, a unique understanding that like whoever is going to be successful isn't just going to take money up front and huge sum is that it's going to look more like a subscription service where payments aren't just you know, day, you know, day zero through day 28, it's going to look more like a weekly or a monthly subscription. And rather than it just being like done in a a specific point in time, like you can continue on. And so that's the thing that we were seeing with groups, which tied exactly into our thesis on how we felt like as consumers, like how we felt that this space should evolve is that it shouldn't be about high upfront costs, you know, because those are effectively just like, let's get as many people in. And, you know, because we're taking money up front, then we're not really invested in their long-term outcomes into like, okay, like we believe that this is going to happen. We think it's going to take a while. Now let's go find companies that are doing it. And frankly, at the time groups, was one of the, I mean, almost the only company that we saw that was already thinking about that. And, with, you know, the data proved that their their customers and their patients were sticking around much longer because of the group component. And so that's what got us excited. That's helpful. I, I guess it re- relates to my other question. You're, you know, you're talking a lot about the, to use the lingo, the B to C, but as we're talking about perhaps the idea of investing or getting involved in a larger, if not a larger startup, a startup that's targeting B2B and that uh, is going to be marketing their services to large payers or large governments. It's hard to know when you meet with the leadership team for that interview, do they have what it takes to get in the door of these companies and to, to sell their platform? So I guess I'm wondering, you know, again, you use the example of groups having five locations, but, but having the potential. When you meet with a group, how much are you looking to see that they've already established themselves with some third-party payer or government before you're going to bet on them? Or what else is going to tell you if they're going to have the potential to really get in the door? I mean, that's that's part of the black magic of being an early stage investor and, and going in at the earliest stage. Sometimes you, you're not going to, not sometimes, all the time, you're not going to have perfect information. And so we have to make a lot of decisions without a, a lot of clarity, frankly. And the later stage it becomes, you know, in the case of groups, they were raising three and a half million dollars. We were a traditional C or we we were a traditional Series A fund, you know, $250 million vehicle. And so for us, like we could take that whole round and and be willing to accept that risk. They had, had proven enough. If someone comes to us without any traction, or very little where they haven't contracted. It really comes down to the credibility of the founder, whether we believe that they can, A, attract and raise the capital required to go and deal with these very long, complex sales, 
into government, employers, insurance companies. And then I think the others is like, just what's the vision and generally the approach in order to like unlock the market. If a founder can come up with the best idea, but we don't believe that they can go effectively raise capital and and actually close some of these deals, then it's a moot point. And so for us, it really comes down to trying to understand the go-to-market, how they plan to penetrate, and then, you know, do we believe that these are capable leaders of of succeeding? And so, you know, that's that's kind that's of how awesome. I think about yeah, it. That's really help that's really helpful for me actually. Kind of having a mental and, framework for that. Yeah. And by and by the and by the way, that I think what I just described could be said for any entrepreneur attacking mm-hmm. any market, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, mm-hmm. I tend to be, even though I would absolutely say I'm a specialist, as a, even though I don't, I'm certainly not a doctor, I've spent enough time in this market to know that I can confidently say that I, I do know the market pretty well. But because I'm a generalist, my job isn't to necessarily have all the answers as it relates to the market opportunity to be, be more of a talent scout and assess the viability of whether like, okay, well, how are they getting from point A to point B? Or how do they think they're getting from point A to point B? And do I believe that they have the potential or and or the capability to go and execute on that? Cool. Well, what, we touched earlier a little bit about the role of medication. And I wanted to know, see if you could talk a bit more about that. You know, the slide that I often show when I present about changes in approaches to addiction around this medical center and other places is this slide that shows the relative effect size of different medications that are used to treat addiction. And by the way, all of this assumes we're not talking about medications that indirectly benefit patients with addiction by treating their depression or anxiety or, or bipolar disorder, but medications that are directly targeted at cravings. So things like buprenorphine, methadone, or in the case of smoking cessation, Shantix, which is varenicline. And so there are very different effect sizes. And it turns out that the the limited medications we have to treat cocaine use disorder or cannabis use disorder, you know, there just is not really a significant signal in the things that we've studied so far in term, another term that's used in, in academic medicine is number needed to treat. So how many patients do you need to treat to get one success story? You're going to have a much higher number needed to treat with medications for cannabis and stimulants. And then when it comes to alcohol, you'll have a number that is maybe around, you know, eight, you'll need to treat eight to 10 patients to get a success story. Whereas with, with buprenorphine, it's going to be, you know, more like, two to four patients you're going to need to treat to really see a significant impact. And so that is really science in a sense. I mean, it's an imperfect science because these are hard studies to do, but it is uh, evidence-based medicine kind of in some ways at its best if, if you're considering outcomes of relapse prevention and retention and treatment. There's a whole other discussion we could have about outcomes related to quality of life and how do you get there. But from just the standpoint of keeping patients in treatment and reducing the frequency of illicit use, these medications for opioid use disorder have a very significant impact. And so that has really changed the dialogue around what standard of care should be, uh, what it should include. I'll add my my two cents, taking just a slightly different approach is we spent time actually talking to a variety of patients that were on numerous 
different medications to treat their addictions. And in the, in the case of methadone, and, and I actually have someone that I'm quite close with that was on methadone. And so was really able to a firsthand see the effects of that and then B talk to them about it. And so, you know, for us, like whenever I, I make an investment, I like to take a very user centric approach and I, I certainly would defer to Dave. I, I don't know the exact, you know, what, what methadone does to the brain versus something like buprenorphine, but I, I know that it's definitely a lot more debilitating. So it's like w- much harder to focus on. It's harder to procure. It's way more regulated. And so for us, like we had made the call just based on a variety of, of research and user uh, user interviews that that look like we do not even want to touch. We don't want to touch methadone. And from the buprenorphine perspective, you know, we were talking to a bunch of different patients up in New England and, you know, we had the one father say like, oh, now I'm, I'm actually back to work and living a, a relatively normal, stable life. I took my kid to school this morning and just like hearing those stories it was like, OK, well, we're comfortable investing in a company that's dispensing these drugs for, for that reason. Now, that said, diversion is absolutely a problem. And diversion is effectively when people are getting buprenorphine or methadone and then either selling it or giving it away to other people, friends and family and, and others in the community. And so I think diversion still remains an issue, but we were willing to take that risk because we felt that, you know, we're, we're big believers in, in harm reduction. If you look at sobriety, you know, over the last 30 years, there's sort of like a zero taught like relapse tolerance approach. And like we as investors believe that, you know, recovery is is a lifelong journey. And, you know, some people are going to fall off the wagon. And, you know, it, it, and so if you take a harm reduction approach, you're saying, OK, well, you know, they might not be 100 percent sober, but like maybe they're on this medication that's going to help them start to make progress in that direction or like, you know what, maybe we'll test for a variety of drugs. And if, if there's marijuana, like we're not going to kick them out of the program because we want them to make, feel like they're making progress. And so those are some of the things that groups was doing that we, that, you know, were definitely controversial that we were willing to live with that risk because we definitely Mm. subscribed to the harm reduction approach. Yeah. I love that you guys as investors have a philosophy of what's good care and good treatment. And, you know, the medication is a huge topic. There's, there's new medication, new injectable buprenorphine formulation coming out. Will that be a game changer, prevent diversion? We don't know. I, I want to certainly just touch the, the methadone question and say that, you know, it, it is a very evidence-based treatment. It is much more highly regulated, as Steve said, which means it's not always consistent for many people with living a, a full quality of working life, although some make it work. Uh, we, we do think that many people on it get to a steady state dose where they're not as cognitively impaired, but it is probably more impairing than buprenorphine as a full opioid agonist to some degree. But that may be sub-threshold kind of cognitive deficits for most patients. But there's some stigma or stereotype around seeing somebody who's taking too much methadone or taking it with other medications and appearing sedated. All that said, you know, medication ties into the whole uh, harm reduction versus uh, abstinence-based philosophies, as Steve said. And I, for one, am a big proponent of 12-step involvement. I think there's good evidence that referring patients there from mainstream medicine is helpful. 
And so uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm sort of going on record as saying that I see medications as playing a complementary role with uh, psychosocial treatments. But there's a huge movement in medicine to say whether you've got therapy available or not, you should be offering these medications. And from a public health standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. So that's a little riff on medication there. And and one of, one of the things I'll I'll jump in. I'm glad that that Dave mentioned twelve step programs because they've been around for for more than fifty years. They tend to be almost in every community across the country. I've personally found a lot of value in them, and I know a lot of others that have. I also know a bunch of people that are in recovery that that don't care for for it. Um, but but what I'm trying to say is. It's a great option. They're often free. And I, I find that because access and cost, that equation is, is strong. Like, it's a great place to get started. You know, in fact, I had someone in the startup community come to me last week, which I often do because I'm fairly open about my sobriety. And, you know, super successful founder has, you know, built and sold companies and he said to me, like, look, I'm struggling and like, I don't really know what to do. What, you know, do I go to do I go to AA? Do I go away? I don't know what to do about it. And I've been hearing this like more and more than ever before, especially in the startup community. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it. But the point is, is I pointed him towards a 12 step group just so he can like dip his toe in the water and see what it's all about. And it might not be for him, but I think like, again, like recovery is a process you can't get sober unless you really want to get sober, right? Like, I don't think anybody's going to for, like, it's very hard to force someone to do something that they don't want to. And so, you know, for me, it's just helping people take each like incremental step so that they can eventually get there on their own. You know, I, I, I do believe that this is a problem that isn't going away. As I got certified in mental health first aid, a few weeks ago, one thing that they stressed in this program was that nearly 20% of Americans have some form of mental illness, whether it's depression, anxiety, substance uh, use disorder, psychoses, eating disorder. And so I always like to say, if imagine you and I are, you know, you're, you're a New Yorker, by your upbringing, imagine you and I are sitting in the middle of Madison Square Garden. The, the stands are packed, and we ask someone, the audience, if, if they knew someone that had some sort of a substance use disorder or men, mental illness. I mean, almost, I, I have to believe that every single arm in the room, maybe people would raise both arms. And so, this is something that's widespread. It impacts just about everybody. And because there's a stigma associated with it and not a tremendous amount of like low friction access where people don't feel like they're being people that need help and, and want help aren't seeking help. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is all of this, all of the work in the space is super powerful. It's great to see. But like we're still in the very early innings. And and I personally believe and why I'm so open about my own recovery is that I think when people speak up and talk about experiences, it gives others the power to do the same. And that's why I've had a bunch of founders and 
and other people in the community reach out to me and say like, look, I, I really appreciate how open you are and I'm dealing with the same things. And so like, I think we have a long way to go both in terms of solutions as well as just, you know, removing the stigma so that the people that we love and that we're close to can get the help that they need. That's amazing. Last question on that. Is there anything like a year from now, what progress can we make as a, as an industry or, or collectively in terms of what steps can we make take to, to reduce that stigma? It's, I think it's, it's really ingrained in our society. And so, you know, I think it's, it's going to take much longer than a year. I think there's a lot being done around it, which is, which I think is the first step. And so I can't, necessarily point to one one thing in particular i can certainly speak from my own perspective both as an investor i'm uh, for for those that are listening i'm also an executive and leadership coach so i have a private practice where i work with a handful of ceos uh, around the country and so my job as both an investor coach plus someone who's vocal in the community is to continue to spread my own story and also encourage that, you know, it's okay to talk about these things and that we should be talking about them. And particularly in the startup community, particularly among founders, like this stuff is starting to be talked about, but I think we have a long way to go. It's really widely accepted. Okay, awesome. Dave, Steve, we'll, we'll talk to you both soon. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.